that is just some of the most heartfelt and beautiful and subtle and restrained lyric writing I've, I think I've ever heard. Being into folk music in the post-war revival was not a trendy thing. Yeah. It's, it's not the equivalent of, you know, following a few garage labels on Instagram and being into UK garage in 2020. Rolling Stone wrote an article describing Joni as the queen of LA. Essentially, they were trying to dismiss her as just like another girlfriend or muse to more important male artists. So she made Blue, this unbelievable album, and in exchange, she got slut-shamed in the biggest music magazine in America. I'm gonna see the folks I dig I'll even kiss a sunset pig California, I'm coming home I met a on a Grecian Hello and welcome back to Death with the Record. I'm joined by Ollie, as always. And this week, we're looking at Joni Mitchell's 1971 album, Blue. Now, I am partly excited, partly a bit nervous about some of the emotional territory we might get into with her music. But I guess for now, and uh, as we usually start with, let's just talk about the year in music. 1971, Ollie, I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, don't be nervous, Jamie. Today's going to be a good app. You can chill out and calm down. <laughs> no, I mean, okay. it's going to be productive. It's going to be nice that we can work through some of these kind of painful memories that Blue provokes in us, you know. That is true. Well, 971 is a bit of a jump back in time in terms of the records that we've covered so far because this is, I think, 19 years before Tribe's debut, which was previously the earliest. I think one thing that strikes me about the albums that was released this year is that there's quite a few what Jamie Cameron might call classic records. <laughs> For me, this tends to be the kind of album that I've probably never listened to the whole way through, but you know, you see plastered on the front of books like 1001 albums to hear before you die. Oh yeah. So you know that you probably shouldn't have listened to it. Is that is that right, Jamie? Is that what you're thinking? Well, it's just funny that you're making these digs about like classics and that book because your apparent favorite band ever, Joy Division, which you never talk about except to answer the question, what's my favorite band? So there's definitely some image making going on there. For the benefit of people who are not watching this on YouTube on the video, I'm currently holding up a thousand one albums you must hear before you die. That, that Ollie was just disparaging. And guess what album's on the cover? It's Unknown Pleasures, Joy Division, Ollie's apparent favourite band. So I'm not sure if there's some insecurity speaking there or, or what's going on, Ollie, but um, maybe, yeah, well, what, watch what you say in the rest of this segment, boys. <laughs> well, to get back to the podcast, some of the records that I'm going to list today are the kind of ones that I imagine Jamie and his cronies were kind of discussing over lunchtime at school. So, yeah, let's, let's get going. There were some big names in British music, John Lennon, David Bowie, the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin all brought out albums this year. Have you got a favourite among those, Jamie? Uh, probably Led Zeppelin 4, yeah. Looking at 1971, when I was doing a bit of research for this, it was kind of strange because I was reading some of the albums and I thought, ooh, Curtis Mayfield, that's a great soul album. Bill Withers, another great soul album. Marvin Gaye, Sly and the Family Stone. And I realised, obviously, it's 1971, so there's going to be some amazing soul albums in there. Mm. Carol King brought out Tapestry as well, one of the best-selling albums of all time. As I also imagine Don McLean, American Pie is, although I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> There's also a couple of your favourites that were released this year, Jamie. Yeah. The first, Nick Drake's Brighter Later. Yep. You like that album, don't you? Amazing. And then the second one, I th I'm pretty sure you like this, is Can's Tago Mago. You know, I, I do, yeah. That's, I like their, their subsequent album better, but that is yeah, also sick. Egye Bamyasi. Yeah, that that, that's, cool. I mean, the pronounce in their record is an absolute nightmare. So, yeah, play. it's not good. <laughs> I've actually got a funny story for you about Egye Bamyasi. Apologies if we're getting that wrong. Yeah, yeah. So, apparently, the band rented 
an abandoned cinema near Cologne to produce this record, yeah. but the the making of the album got completely derailed by two of the band members obsessively playing chess day in day out <laughs> so, so finishing the album became like a frantic rushed ordeal and apparently they were just recording some tracks in real time by the end because all they'd done is just waste time playing chess so i thought you uh, i thought you might enjoy that i do enjoy that especially because i've just spent the past weekend watching queen's gambit on on netflix and absolutely smashing through that which is just an amazing tv show about chess so you've hit me at a prime time what a story well yeah that is uh, that's 1971 in music fair enough well that was yeah an absolutely classic year shall we move on to the album then yeah let's do it all right well Joni mitchell Blue. We've just spoke a bit about 1971, but let's just say, you know, the passage of times changes perceptions about things. So back in this time in 1971, the island of Ibiza was not quite what we see it as today. And I am going somewhere with this, so so bear with me. Ibiza was not full of recruitment middle managers, sales directors, Instagram influencers on their holidays in 1971, nor was it the home of Gary Lineker's wayward prodigal brother who was making a career of hitting on 18-year-olds. It was also not full of gurners, off they're not an MDMA, listening to Richie Horton play a set live from an inflatable lilo in a swimming pool. Essentially, in 1971, no one was paying £60 for a vodka and Red Bull and getting fucked up in amnesia. Instead, in the early 60s, or the late 60s and early 70s, sorry, Ibiza and the nearby island Formentera was defined mostly by its relationship to the hippie subculture. So obviously during the 60s and 70s, many Americans wanted to get away from the fighting in the Vietnam War, or the other political turmoil in the United States. And they discovered in Ibiza, a place in the Mediterranean that remained relatively isolated from tourism. So meanwhile, after the success of Joni's first three albums, songs like Big Yellow Taxi, Woodstock, Both Sides Now, Joni was becoming somewhat of an icon in the folk scene. So feeling burnt out from all her touring, what did Joni Mitchell decide to do? She went traveling in Europe. So this is where half the album, and perhaps it's more upbeat half, it is born from. So songs like Carrie and California, All I Want, detail some of the relationships and events and feelings from this Euro trip. Now, this being Joni Mitchell, these were not just songs about like sunshine and the sea and MDMA. They were, um, if you don't know Joni Mitchell's music well, she's kind of maybe the 1970s equivalent of what Tumblr users were like back in the day. And what I mean by that is that Joni Mitchell just loves to share her songwriting and her lyrics are confessional, sometimes brutally so. And after hearing this album, Blue, Chris Christopherson was so worried for her, he sent her a letter saying, I'm like, Jesus, Joni, please just keep something to yourself, protect yourself. Now, Ollie, as a man like yourself, who frequently refuses to face or acknowledge his own emotions, <laughs> what do you make of Joni treating her lyrics as almost like diary entries, albeit very consciously structured and considered diary entries? Well, you know, I just find it kind of funny because I was fortunate enough to go interrailing after I'd finished school with a few mates for three weeks. And, you know, let's just say that the video that we produced at the end wasn't quite on the uh, artistic scale of blue, but never mind. <laughs> I think the track maybe that stands out to me in terms of setting the tone for the kind of things that you're talking about, you know, the excitement traveling through Europe is maybe all I want. You know, it's the first track. There's obviously darker mediations throughout Blue, but there's also a lot of joy and excitement as well. And I think that song is just an affirmation for me of, you know, why we're alive. I think there's a there's a verse, you know, I want to be strong, I want to laugh along, I want to belong to the living. And you think, yeah, you know, this, this, I don't know, it kind of, it wakes something up inside you. I want to laugh along, I want to be 
I mean, I think that kind of leads on to the way that Joni approaches lyricism generally. Like, she was never one of these people who kind of hide her, hid her lyrics behind, like, obscure imagery or some kind of mask. She wasn't like Bob Dylan where, you know, he would kind of play with being different characters or whatever. She was very, very conscious about writing her own experiences and writing them as true to life as she could. So that energy that you're talking about, I think, definitely exudes from songs like All I Want and, and all the other ones from that kind of first half of the album, maybe. Because obviously you were mentioning how... Ibiza then was very different to what it is now, and what was the word you used? IT middlemen and things like yeah, that. Yeah, like well, recruitment managers. Recruitment. Yeah. So, so this is quite funny. So uh, there's a song on there called "Carry," which I probably say is one of my favourite songs on the entire album, which is written about a fella that Joni met when she was in Crete, I believe, and I think he owned a local tavern where she used to go drinking and whatnot. Mm. And you know, I, I like to think if if Joni Mitchell wrote a song about me, then I'd probably have to have a little something about me. I'd be an interesting charismatic person mm. and I was kind of interested I was like I wonder who this carry person is I wonder what they're doing now so I did a little bit of research I'm going to read you a quote from the Wall Street Journal and I'm not sure you're going to be able to believe this Jamie all right go on so when Joni Mitchell met Carrie Raditz in early 1970 he was living in a cave in Matala Crete <laughs> today he lives in Maryland and is an institutional investment strategist focusing on international non-profits. What? <laughs> what do you think of that? That's not me, that's the Wall Street Journal, so it's hopefully a reputable source. Yeah, I mean, I guess it kind of sums up like how the boomer generation has fucked all of us, because like they, in their youth, they got to go live in a cave in Crete, and then as soon as they like reached an age, they just joined the establishment and started working as stockbrokers and shit like that, and then fucking the rest of us. How so funny is that? That's, that's terrible. <laughs> People listening to this so far may feel like we're characterising Blue, as an album. Some super jovial record. Yeah, like happy-go-lucky travel and love songs in this kind of pleasant, folky style. And I want to make it clear that that is not necessarily the case. Like As with most, most great artists and a lot of the albums that we've covered so far in this series, this album is defined by uh, duality. Like One minute listening to Joni can be euphoric, as we've talked about, but the next moment it can be utterly, utterly crushing. Like This album is called Blue, after all. So this other half of the album that's very much about heartbreak... I think it's interesting because it's not just another male crooner doing it. This is Joni, one of the most prominent female artists of her time, writing her own music, writing her own lyrics. And the Heartbreak lyrics, I think, are kind of my my favourite thing about this album. Uh, and looking back, Joni's quoted as saying, There's hardly a dishonest note in the vocals. At that period of my life, I had no personal defences. I felt like a cellophane wrapper on a pack of cigarettes. I felt like I had absolutely no secrets from the world. I couldn't pretend in my life to be strong or to be happy. But the advantage of it in the music was that there was no defences there either. So all these ruminations on relationships with people like Graham Nash and James Taylor, they are defined by this utterly bare and, and stark revelation, and also by the fact that she is a woman singing in a man's world. Would you say that's fair, Al? The songs on this album, 
that people like Nash and Taylor or me and you, Jamie, not that I'm putting us in, you know, the bracket of those musicians, <laughs> but just as men, we wouldn't come close to understanding, let alone be able to write. Mm. And I think Little Green, I think it's the third song on the on the album. Yeah. That's probably one of the best examples. That's a song about a baby that Joni Mitchell was forced to put up for adoption six years before Blue was released. She basically became pregnant while she was at art college in Calgary. Her ex-boyfriend ran off leaving her destitute, penniless, and unable to care for this child. Out of shame, like obviously this is 60s Canada, she could never tell her family. She felt that the social stigma of becoming pregnant out of wedlock in the 60s was equivalent to murdering someone. And yeah, she wrote this song in 67, formed it throughout the last stages of the decade, and then released it on Blue in 1971. And I think it's, it's, it's weird because I wonder what the reaction must have been like at the time because apparently it wasn't really picked up on as something that had the potential to be autobiographical from what I've read. And it was only in, I think it was 93, when an ex-roommate of hers sold the story to a tabloid newspaper. Can you just imagine that for a second? Like you've had to go through that horrendous, horrendous ordeal decades and decades ago and then you find out somebody you used to share a room with has sold the story to a tabloid for money. I just think it's absolutely horrendous. But I mean, one good thing that came out of it was four years later, Joni and her daughter were able to finally meet for the first time. But mm. yeah, absolutely horrendous. Yeah, I mean, that that story is absolutely heartbreaking. And I think it speaks to like really kind of Dickensian circumstances of her being destitute and had no money, unable to raise this child. So she was forced to give up for adoption. And your point about her not really realizing, I'm not sure I realized until at least four or five years after I first heard this album, what that song was about. Because as you mm. say, half this album's about you know her personal relationships with romantic relationships with men or her traveling uh, around Europe. And then you have this this song, Little Green. And to me at first, like this is a really little beautiful little folk song. I wonder what yeah. it's about. You know, maybe it's about motherhood in the general conceptual sense. And when I found out this story, and then when you examine the lyrics, it takes on a whole, whole new level of just harrowing, harrowing pain. To focus on some of the lyrics specifically, there's a, there's a line where she talks about being child with a child pretending re of lies you're sending home so you sign all the papers in the family name you're sad and you're sorry but you're not ashamed little green have a happy ending child with a child pretending weary of lies you are sending home so you sign all the papers in the family name You're sad and you're sorry But you're not ashamed A little green Have a happy ending To me, that is just some of the most heartfelt and beautiful and subtle and restrained lyric writing I've, I think I've ever heard. And I know I, I want to avoid this podcast us becoming just kind of gushing about how beautiful these songs are, but when you listen to them, and, and, and you should if you haven't heard them, you'll come to understand just how amazing her delivery is. Her voice is something that really struck me the first time I started listening to her. And, you know, I've kind of seen the odd interview with her over the last few weeks. And she offered a kind of interesting analogy for how she wanted to present herself on this record. Mm. And basically said that she was influenced by the kind of crooner sound of the 40s. So you got like these beautiful melodies. 
but then the songs themselves use very direct and simple English mm. and she actually preferred the kind of storytelling aspect of Dylan's work and the kind of personal narrative that he was pushing you know like I feel this you've done this to me yeah. that kind of thing and interestingly before they fell out <laughs> she said that no one had ever written that in song form and his influence Dylan's influence was to kind of personalize her own work mm. But whereas he kind of spoke in paragraphs at the sacrifice of the music, Joni's able to create this kind of hybrid where the songwriting allows for like melodic and harmonic movement, but then with plateau so that she's able to really put this like incredible poetry to like the front of a listener's mind. And I think, I think the result is something unique. I think it can be unsettling, but, and maybe gets, maybe takes a little bit of getting used to, at least it did for me, mm. but it is something that's unique. Yeah, and I think you're, you're touching on something really important there, which is that with Dylan, because of his voice, and I'm so, so tempted to do a Dylan impression now, but I'm going to restrain myself <laughs> and I'm not going to do it. Maybe on social media. <laughs> and I'll do, yeah, go on our Instagram and I'll be doing plenty of those. But with Dylan's voice, he, it just kind of lends itself to, as you say, speaking in paragraphs and having these fantastical imagery, images about, you know, valley this and or, or, or whatever, you know. Um, with Joni, because of her voice, and kind of brief moment to let me get into the, the details of that. But she had a mezzo-soprano voice, which basically means that her chest voice or normal singing voice is actually a bit deeper than the classic soprano female vocal range. But because of her falsetto, she was able to slide really quickly between these fairly deep vocal sounds and you know up three octaves mm. really, really high. And I think in one interview, she describes her voice being as a bit like singing on helium, which is actually a fairly accurate uh, <laughs> reflection. But I think the way that she uses her voice, as you say, to reach these kind of plateaus and speak in direct English, um, but with her voice going all over the place from her falsetto to her chest voice, it, mm. it's absolutely unique, as you say. And I can understand why people sometimes say, oh, it takes a bit getting used to with Joni. But I think once you do get used to it, as with anything, it just becomes it becomes part of your um, of expectations when you listen yeah. to her and then is only enhanced. I think a funny, maybe a funny story to end the album chat. In preparation for this, obviously I've just been listening to as many Joni Mitchell records as I can. Mm. And a, a few weeks back, I think I was, yeah, I was just uh, cooking dinner with a friend. And I think I just finished uh, maybe the second consecutive Joni Mitchell record in a row. And it was kind of, there was like a silence towards the end of the final track. And then another album started up and the person I was cooking dinner with was like, fucking hell could we just turn this off and i was like oh okay fine mate. <laughs> you know chill out no problem yeah it was i think i think you need to build up a limit to the amount you can yeah, listen maybe, to in one go i think maybe you do not only yeah partly because of the voice partly because it's so heartbreaking you'll have to tell me who that was off air later because yeah. i'm very interested to to, <laughs> to know um right to end this to end the album uh section so we just kind of give our favorite songs do you have a favorite song if you had to pick one off this album carrie Carrie, fair enough. I, I'm, Easy. I'm going with Little Green, which is quite a nice, like, both, Green. both of those are uh, a nice parallels for the two different sides of That's true. the album, I'd say. Right, let's move on to Apex. Now, normally in this segment, Apex, we try and work out where the album, in this case Blue, sits in the context of an artist's career. We chat a bit about how their work's changed over time and then decide if this is their best album and if it's not their best album, which is... Today I wanted to do something a bit different. So, Ollie, Joni Mitchell's discography spans over 40 years and 20 albums. Mm. And if you picked one of those albums at random to listen to, having never heard her music before, you could be left with any one of a number of very different impressions of what she sounds like. And, yeah. and there are some reasons for this. Like, firstly, Joni was never content to rest on her laurels musically. She was always developing and changing her sound. But beyond that, she was taking control of her future in a way that not many musicians like her were able to do at that time. 
as a result, I think she should be considered as pop music's first female auteur. So you may be asking, what does this mean? Like, what's an auteur? There goes Jamie again, <laughs> using big words he's stolen from film yeah, I'm Twitter. Gl- I'm glad you're, exche- I'm glad you're I, explaining this I, one, lad. I knew, I knew you would, uh, I knew you'd pick up on it. For me and the listeners. <laughs> exactly. Well, what I mean is that Joni was the first major female pop artist who was able to define herself on her own terms, outside of label and industry pressure. And she did this by taking complete ownership of her sound and then using that control to subvert expectations from album to album. So she demanded essentially that she be taken as seriously as her male contemporaries, you know, the Bob Dylans, the Neil Youngs, the Paul Simons of this world, whatever. And Ollie, I think Joni should be absolutely fucking commended for having the bravery to switch up her sound and pursue what she wanted to pursue in the face of, let's be honest, like pretty rampant misogyny. To give some examples of that, after the release of Blue, Rolling Stone wrote an article describing Joni as the Queen of L.A. And then they also called her the Old Lady of the Year. Essentially, they were trying to dismiss her as just like another girlfriend or muse to more important male artists. They even published a diagram of supposedly heartbroken lovers and how they all connected back to Joni. So she made Blue, this unbelievable album, and in exchange, she got slut-shamed in the biggest music magazine in America. For listeners, you can find that diagram. It's quite a pixelated one on Google mm. Images, but if you Google like Joni Mitchell, Rolling Stone, you can find it. And it's it's it shocked me that that was published. I know it was 1971 and everything, but that was that was a surprise to me. Yeah, absolutely. And one more story to illustrate that point even further. There's an interview where Joni talks about a listening party that her and Bob Dylan had for the new albums in the 70s because they were on the same label at the time. And this is to quote her. There was all this fussing over Bobby's project because he was new to the label. And Court and Spark, which was a big breakthrough for me, was being entirely and almost rudely dismissed. Dylan played his album, Planet Waves, and everybody went, oh wow. I played my album, and everybody talked over it, and Bob fell asleep. So, I mean, like there, there you go, and you can talk a lot about how her and Bob Dylan ended up falling out, but that's one story. And I could go on with many more stories, I won't, because I've been talking a lot. Instead, I want to open the floor to discussion, Ollie, and ask you, as someone who perhaps hasn't spent as much time as I have fanboying over Joni's later jazz or synth or whatever influenced albums. How do you feel about the way her career progressed and, and what she faced during it? I've got, a, I've got a great deal of admiration for somebody that isn't bowed or pressured by labels, by management, or just by, even by peers, mm. you know, and she just continued to work with whoever she wanted to, regardless of kind of all this white noise. She released an album in 79 with uh, Charles Mingus, mm. who was kind of, you know, like a revered jazz musician. And everybody told her, steer clear, don't do that. It's bad for your image, it's bad for your career, it's bad for relevance in music, etc., etc." But she wasn't going to be swayed by any of that and decided to make an album. Another good example would be, I, I read, for example, that she went on a tour with uh, Van Morrison and Bob Dylan mm. again before they'd fallen out. This was a few years back. And apparently Van and Bob Dylan, you know, were playing all their old hits, but she decided to kind of firmly stick to her new album and her new material. Yeah. And I think the quote at the time was something like, you know, I'm not a human jukebox. I have, I have, a, I have a large deal of kind of begrudging respect for that. And because the, the thing is, it is begrudging, because let's be honest, like, yeah. that, this is like, it's amazing that someone can commit to their own development as, as much as she did. But let's also not pretend that her development necessarily always went in ways that were satisfying for the listener. Like I love yeah. her, her, some of her albums in the 70s uh, as much as anyone, like Kajira, Mingus, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. They're all amazing. 
When you start getting into the 80s and into the 90s, she, as you say, in, in the face of label pressure, in the face of the pressure from her peers, made whatever the fuck she want. And the results weren't always that great. Like, let's be honest, Dog Eat Dog, Night Ride Home, Turbulent Indigo. These are not amazing albums, but like fair play that she just decided to do it anyway. They're her own mistakes, aren't they? That's the, they're I think her own that's, mistakes. That's one thing you can say. You take your hat off, applaud that. I think, do you, do you know what this reminded me of a little bit? When we went to see Massive Attack a few years ago in mm. Croatia, and I remember they didn't play Teardrop. Yeah. And I remember we were chatting at the campsite the day after, and I was kind of like, fuck's sake, man, why don't they play Teardrop? Or Unfinished like, Symphony, either as well. Yeah, they didn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I remember you said, like, look, man, like, you know, they can play what they want. They've got enough hits. Like, why, why are you getting vexed about that? <laughs> and it kind of made me think, like, yeah, do you know what? You were spot on. Like, it's their decision. They're the, it's not like they're there purely just to make me happy. Surely them as artists, they've got to be doing what they want to do. And I think ultimately Joni Mitchell will look back on her career and think that. Yeah, well, the, the other thing as well is like, you have to think about what, as a woman, whether she was allowed the same opportunities to do those things as the men were. Because you take someone like Paul Simon, who was, you know, in Simon and Garfunkel, as folky as you can get, and in a really kind of sophomoric sense as well. He moved beyond that kind of singer-songwriter thing and made fucking Graceland or like the late great Johnny Ace. Those are like completely different albums to what he was known for, and everyone loved him for it. But then when Joni makes Mingus, or you know, it, it's not given. It's a travesty. Yeah, it's not yeah. afforded the same level of respect. And I think you can't forget that this whole time she was doing all these things, she was doing it as a woman in a man's world. And I think like mm. the respect I have for for that is is, is, is unbelievable. So one, one question I've got for you. Mm. So you've mentioned the progression and the development of a career. Which Joni Mitchell did you kind of first get into like when you first started listening to her? Oh, it was Blue. Blue was the first was Joni Blue. Mitchell I went to. It was only in the past like year or two that I've really started like getting into her some of her other albums. Well, right, what okay. about yourself? Well, this is gonna this is definitely gonna upset See, you. Every time I ask that, I know this is coming. <laughs> what go on. So I think the first time I heard her name or heard one of her songs would probably be a scene in Love Actually when Alan Rickman has kind of cheated on, well, you know, bought a necklace for this girl at work and then his wife finds out and she goes and stands in a room and she's like, I think she's holding like the uh, Joni Mitchell CD while the song's playing. So yeah, I'm sorry, mate, but that was the first time I ever heard her name. I know that's going to cut you deep. No, 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 I want to choose mine, I want to choose mine. I think I want this one. I have, of course, bought the traditional scarf as well, but this is my other... Slightly special, personal one. Thank you. God, that's a surprise. What is it? It's a CD. Joni Mitchell, wow. That's great. My brilliant wife. Actually, um, do you mind if I just absent myself for a second? All that ice cream. Moons and dunes and Ferris wheels The dizzy dancing way that you feel Well, I mean, like, love actually one thing, like, I, whatever you think of Richard Curtis, the, the bigger point is that in that scene, I remember, they, it, the song's playing is Both Sides Now, but it's mm. the re-recorded version uh, of Both Sides Now, which is uh, alludes to another thing that Joni Mitchell decided to do in her later career, fair play to her, she was obsessed with re-recording all her material. So, like, the the album Travel, Travel Log is, like, all of her great songs over the past 30 years, but re-recorded with this, like, horrific, overdone orchestral backing. Like, if you're a Joni Mitchell fan and you haven't listened to that album, go through it once because you'll be astounded just by how, like, 
lacking in taste than it is. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. I, so we've we've got the distasteful stuff out of the way. Yeah. yeah what what do you think is our apex to kind of bring it back to uh, bring it back to the pod? Yeah, we probably should talk about about the actual apex. I mean, I don't want to go into too much detail with this. Personally, I think our apex is Hegira. Blue is definitely up there as well. What I will say is that I'm going to be doing an Instagram takeover this week on our Instagram. It's in the description at Death with the Record. Going, you know, going into detail with Hajira and why I think that's such an amazing album. Ollie has been listening to me like blather on about it incessantly for for ages. So I'm going to put that all on Instagram and let that be done and see what the people think. For now, I'm going to say Hajira Blue. There's Court and Spark. There's lots of albums you could put up under Apex. I think maybe it's best to let people just kind of go into her catalogue as they see fit and and spend some time with each of these albums and see what they think. Maybe avoid travel log though. Um, <laughs> and dog eat dog. <laughs> And probably Dog Eat Dog as well. I mean, I've kind of talked myself into Dog Eat Dog slightly. I don't know why. I've talked myself into a bit of a good album, which means I'm truly, I'm just losing it. I'm losing the plot, the amount of journey I've been listening to recently. And well, let's go on to alternate clubs yeah, let's before you properly lose it then. <laughs> so in this segment, we try and engage with some of the major criticisms that surround the artist and reflect on how our enjoyment of the record might be impacted. Occasionally, we'll even throw out some of our own thoughts or alternate cuts on how the record relates to wider culture and see whether there's anything that it basically forces us to reconsider. This week, we wanted to explore some of the most important spaces in the history of folk music and the career of Joni Mitchell. Now, Jamie, if I say the word coffee house to you, (laughs) I'd imagine the first thing that comes into your head is probably, you know, Chandler, Ross, Rachel, etc., cracking wise over a donut. Would I would I be near the mark there? Yeah, you're not wrong, you're not wrong. But as we know, coffee houses in 60s New York were altogether a very different thing. They were vital spaces in the folk revival of the post-war period. And to elaborate on this slightly, I just want to touch on something that you mentioned a few weeks ago, Jamie, in the Tribe Called Quest episode that we did. And, you know, during your introduction to the origins of hip-hop, you said that its genesis as with any origin story, contains a lot of mythology, a lot of mythic stories about specific street parties, specific moments, and how they all directly correlate to how the genre develops. Mm. I think that a natural extension of that statement is specific venues as well. Mm. So like, for example, depending on which side of the Atlantic you live on, Chicago's The Warehouse or Manchester's Hacienda might mean something to you if you're a lover of house music. I think for the purposes of folk music and for Joni Mitchell, New York's Greenwich Village is an equally mythic area that has become synonymous, if not as the birthplace, then the nub of the genre, especially in the 50s and the 60s. As for the venues themselves, coffee houses tended to be pretty small and pokey, and their intimacy is the reason why solo musicians with quiet instruments like an acoustic were such a draw. And the fact that these venues were small meant that dancing was not common, which differed from jazz clubs of the previous era. Spectators were expected to kind of sit in silence, to listen and to reflect. You know, in this sense, they probably had more in common with the beatnik poetry bars that preceded them rather than your average day nightclub. I know we've not been in one for a while, Jamie, but (laughs) I can't remember if I've ever sat down on the floor of, you know, Sub Club or the Roundhouse or XOY or anything. Certainly not if we were in a good state or a conscious state, yeah. We've not deliberately sat down. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, the relationship between poets and folk musicians or between jazz heads and folk musicians definitely wasn't always an amicable one. Like being mm. into folk music in the post-war revival was not a trendy thing. Yeah. It's it's not the equivalent of 
you know, following a few garage labels on Instagram and being into UK garage in 2020. <laughs> the UK garage dons out there, yeah. There was a lot of sneering from other quarters when it came to folk music. And I think one recent film that documents this quite well, actually, and it's a film that we both love, is the Coen Brothers' Inside Llewellyn Davis. Yeah. And it just kind of documents New York's folk scene in the 60s. And for those who haven't seen it, I just want to mention one quite specific scene featuring the protagonist, who's a struggling folk singer played by Oscar Isaac, and a jazz musician played by John Goodman. And they're basically sharing a car ride together and they get talking about what they do for a living. So we're just going to play that for you now. What's your name, Pablo? Lewin Davis. What's the N stand for? What? What's the N stand for? Lou Ann Davis. Lewin. Lewin, L-L-E-W-Y-N, it's Welsh. Well, it would have to be something stupid fucking name like that. You don't look Welsh. My mother was a... Holy Jesus, what is that thing? Uh, it's, uh, it's my cat. Well, it's not my cat. Grown it's... man with a cat. Is that part of your act? No. What'd you say you played? Folk songs. Folk songs. I thought you said you were a musician. Folk singer with a cat. So yeah, folk songs. Thought you said you were a musician. <laughs> <laughs> bit of a par. Yeah, just a bit. But the film is based on the autobiography of Dave Van Ronk, who was an internal figure uh, in Greenwich's 60s scene. So, you know, despite this being a fictional exchange, I think it's quite a revealing piece of dialogue. Yeah. Jamie, I've been, I've been talking for ages now. I want to know, what are your thoughts on the significance of Greenwich Village to Joni Mitchell's career? I think, firstly, it's super interesting that, you know, if you compare her live music career and touring career, how it started and then what it ended up becoming, the difference is astronomical. So, you, look, you know, you think about Greenwich Village, these small coffee shops, as you've described. Joni Mitchell would book her own shows. She didn't have a manager back then, so she promoted herself and basically built a following off her own back. Then you consider some of the tours and live shows she became a part of later in her career and then you start to kind of build a different picture. And I think partly that's because of the way that live music developed into the 70s and the way the live shows changed because they kind of ended up becoming seen as this indulgent, almost sexual experience of like worship for a particular artist just defined by complete excess. And then from that, groupie culture developed. So if you take a band like Led Zeppelin, they're the prime example of this. And what their live show ended up being by the mid-70s, you know, it's them playing Madison Square Garden, completely sold out, doing three-hour-long sets, while thousands of teenagers just lose their fucking shit every time Robert Plant kind of humps the microphone or Jimmy Page plays his, plays his solo. And I think Joni, to an extent, did get swept up in that kind of change in, in the, the live scene at the time. She was invited by Bob Dylan on the Rolling Thunder Review Tour, and Martin Scorsese made a documentary about this tour on Netflix, if you're interested, that's amazing. But what differed about this tour is that Dylan designed it so that he'd be able to go to smaller venues and, and have a more intimate experience with his audiences in, in less populated cities. So the tour included 57 concerts over quite a short period of time. And of course, naturally, it was absolutely rife with cocaine, like incestuous really romances, every kind of sordid thing you can possibly imagine. And more relevantly to Joni, she became addicted to cocaine on this tour. And it took oh, her yeah. several years to, to kick that addiction. So she was basically fairly ruined by the intensity of this kind of touring. So that was in 76? That right? was in 76. You compare that with, you know, playing in the Greenwich Village folk coffee house. And it's, it's a bit, you know, it's pretty massive. Do you think that's had an effect on her voice? Because you mentioned you thought Hegira was her apex. Mm. I think one of the things that strikes me most about the difference between Hegira and Blue, and that's like a five-year gap, is her voice sounds completely different to me. And I know... From other musicians, 
I know the impact that drug addiction can have on your singing voice. Is yeah. that something that you've kind of noticed a little bit? Maybe. I mean, the other thing is that Joni Mitchell's been smoking, was smoking since she was nine years old. So the mm. fact that she's managed to maintain that voice at all is, is interesting. I, I think also if you look at her even more recent albums and in interviews now, her voice has completely changed and it's become way deep and she can't quite hit those those higher notes. So maybe that's mm. maybe that's part of it. I'd say the other thing is most significantly is that as we've discussed. Joni only ever drew from her personal life when she was writing songs and I think she wouldn't have ended up making any of those songs if she hadn't had those experiences with Bob Dylan and she played in The Last Waltz as well which is another really famous concert that, that you should check out on YouTube with you know Van Morrison, Neil Diamond, Eric Clapton, whoever else. So yeah I mean it's interesting that she started started in Greenwich Village, ended up addicted to cocaine tour tour in the States you know. Okay, one way that we could maybe tie up the alternate cut segment. I'd like to read you a quote from American musician David Crosby, who was actually a close friend and collaborator with Joni. And yeah, he had this to say. I walked into a coffee shop and she was singing and she just floored me, rocked me back up against the back wall of that place and I stood there transfixed. I couldn't believe there was anybody that good. I have no way of telling you, Jamie, which venue or which performance Crosby's talking about here, but... In a way, I think that's kind of apt. The point is, going back to what you were saying earlier, the amount of coffeehouse gigs that Joni was playing around this time, you know, the potential number of these like light bulb or eureka moments is huge. And mm. I think if we had the potential to kind of conduct a death with the record survey of people <laughs> milling about Greenwich Village in the 60s, I'm sure that David Crosby wouldn't be the only person saying this kind of thing. Mm. But one thing it did get me thinking about is whether the concepts of, you know, specific venues or specific areas as like melting pots of creativity and new music has died to a certain extent. I think mm. obviously the pandemic has halted live music, but even before this year, I feel as though the internet has kind of displaced the role that coffee houses served, you know, in this post-war period, the kind of thing that Crosby's getting up. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, put it this way: When's the last time you discovered an artist or a band at a live show? Because honestly, I'm not sure I could remember. Maybe outside of some DJs or bands at festivals, the last time I went to a show in London or ever, mm. and was just like, "Oh wow, a eureka moment!" Like the one you're describing. I mean, maybe that's just me. What do you, what do you think? Um, I mean, there's one I can think of the top of my head, but it's pretty embarrassing. I went to see... Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Go on, go on. <laughs> I went to see... I mean, this was... Actually, I was with you, I think. This was like five, six years ago. Yeah. We went to see Loyal Karna. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. You, you got me a free ticket. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, I mean, and the less said about that, the better. But <laughs> I remember there was a band called Babe Heaven on before them. Yeah. And, you know, as is the case with, um, you know, with support slots, usually they only have about 20, 30 minutes to play the set. I remember coming out thinking, that was really fucking good. Like, I'm definitely going to go see them again. Yeah. And, I, you know, I bought tickets, started listening to more of their music, and it kind of quickly became apparent that, like, 25, 30 minutes is actually, like, the ideal length of time <laughs> that you want to listen to that band to. Because Jeez. after that, everything just starts becoming a little bit repetitive. Like, they've got, like, four amazing songs. But, so like, harsh. you know, every, uh, anyway. Yeah, that would probably be the last time. <laughs> well, I mean, and, that, and that's not exactly the most like prescient example. Like Joni Mitchell, Babe Heaven. Mm. <laughs> Ooh, I wonder, I wonder which one comes up on top there. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Because the thing is, right? Like you would discover it on a blog, or on Twitter, or on Spotify, or on YouTube, whatever. You or there like is Facebook sharing groups and things. Yeah, like, that. like there aren't these geographic scenes, at least in the same way. Because there are, there are scenes, right? As you're saying, mm. they're just not tied to a geographical area or a set of venues. 
At least not as commonly. There will be examples that we've missed, if, uh, of course, but I think generally speaking, that's that's definitely a trend. I think like dubstep, southwest London, around like the early 2000s, that would be yeah. like a good example. I mean, even grime was city-wide. It's not like it's located in you know a small area like Greenwich Villages. Do you know what I mean? It's not like there's particular like one venue that like you just go to for like to see a grime show, is there? At least, mm. and even with like some of the electronic music scenes that you're describing. When the Hessel Audio guys were coming up, there wasn't was there like one place that they were all playing? Maybe there was because we you know we maybe missed out on that at the time. But it's yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting debate for sure. I reckon we end this with the album cover nightclub, Jamie. Let's do it. Let's go to the album cover cool. nightclub. Well, yeah, as always, we're going to end death with the record by imagining a scenario where the album cover is trying to get into a nightclub. Jamie and I are the bouncers. So <laughs> this week, of course, we're looking at Joni Mitchell's Blue. We've seen her join the back of the queue. But we're not paying attention to anything she's been talking in her ear, chatting on about how many albums she's released, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> chatting on about Dog Eat Dog. We're only focused on four criteria. Aesthetics, originality, harmony between music and artwork, and whether or not you could consider this to be an iconic cover. As with any nightclub, you know, it's not just everybody come in. We've got a few different levels to this thing. Mm. So we got GOAT, highest level, Hall of Fame, straight in, no questions asked. VIP, not quite on GOAT level, but still a very commendable album cover. You know, good effort. Third, ticket on the door. You know, you're just about sneaking in. Jamie and I are feeling very generous. You know, you've been waiting in the rain. Okay, you can come in. Fourth, name's not down, not coming in. Get out of our sight. Embarrassing. Don't be don't be joining the back of the queue. Just just leave. Get in an Uber. Back to Joni Mitchell. I find it interesting that she's described her early musical career at university in Calgary when she was just playing gigs in coffee houses as a mimic and just a hobby because her true passion as a child, which I'm sure you're aware, Jamie, was actually art Mm. and painting. And I think it's therefore kind of little surprise that a lot of her covers feature her own artwork and her own painting quite frequently. I think Turbulent Indigo from 1994 is probably one of the best examples. Yeah. It's, it's kind of inspired by Van Gogh, uh, yeah. apparently. I think, <laughs> I think hit and miss might be the best way to describe her discography in a visual sense. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a really, really big fan of some early covers like Song to a Seagull, Ladies of the Canyon. I really enjoy the kind of spurts of bright, vivid colours on you know white backgrounds. I even like Clouds, although I know you're not such a massive fan. Maybe it's a bit kind of A-level art for your taste. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> it looks like the kind of thing you might find in like, yeah, an, a six-form art block display would be, my, <laughs> yeah. would be how I'd describe it. But. And I think if you want to see one of her covers that maybe rivals Stillmatic and the Love Movement as one of the worst we've ever seen, then please go have a look at Dog Eat Dog. I know we oh, keep mentioning it. <laughs> I feel harsh now. We've really dug out Dog Eat Dog on this episode, man. Oh, it's I'm sorry, Joni. I'm really sorry. It was her birthday the other week as well. Oh, really oh, Joni. Happy birthday. I think it would probably be fair to say that Blue is a lot better than Dog Eat Dog. And mm. it's also very different from the majority of her covers. And I kind of mean that in you know a genuine, positive manner. I think you could make the argument to say this is probably the most straightforward. It's, it's just a photo the shot itself was taken by a fellow called Tim Considine, who was apparently quite a famous child actor in the 50s and became a photographer late in life. But yeah, Blue is just a dark, blue-toned photograph of Mitchell singing into a microphone. Jamie, I want to know what you want to think before I you know, offer my opinion. What, what are you thinking about Blue? 
Well, yeah, I think straight up, this is our first GOAT album cover of the series, without without question. And honestly, I think it is one of the most iconic album covers of all time. I, I at least can't imagine a more perfect harmony between the music and the artwork of an album. Here's a little thought experiment to kind of illustrate what I mean. I think the true test of a great album cover is what leaps to mind when you think of a particular album. So like when you think of, I don't know, like Stereolab Dots and Loops that we've done in this series... When I think of that album, my mind does not jump to the image of the cover art, even remotely. Yeah. But when I think of this album, and when I think of Joni Mitchell, I can't help but think of this image. It really is as simple as that, that this image has bored itself into my mind and into wider culture too. And I think the thing is that it's not afraid to be simple, as you were, as you were talking about. I think mm. the simplicity is critical. Like Over the 50 years that have passed, that has become the definitive image of Joni Mitchell, the definitive image even of you know professional singer-songwriters everywhere. And for that reason, at least for me, I think it's goat without without question. Am I am I being too hasty or not? Do you know what? I think if you'd asked me this four weeks ago, I probably would have tried to launch some kind of counter argument. Maybe not mm. quite as vociferously as I did on the Amy Winehouse episode when you very rudely <laughs> shouted me down. Atticus, but I would have, Atticus style, yeah. <laughs> I would have tried to argue with you. One one thing about a cover is. I think you have to spend a certain amount of time with it, looking mm. at it, having that memory and association of listening to the album over and over again and knowing what the cover looks like. As you say, you know, I've not been listening to Joni Mitchell since I was 18. I've not had that kind of emotional attachment, but it's definitely one that, you know, you can build up with time. I mm. can't argue with anything that you've said. It's, it is iconic. It's a great photo, first and foremost, mm. and, you know, it ties perfectly with the themes on the album. So but that's the thing you don't you don't want to state the obvious, but you know outside of the fact that it is in blue toned and the album is called Blue, I think like the way that the different tones of the colours work on the photograph is so in keeping with the ideas of heartbreak and love and yeah. loss and and everything on the album. Yeah, but just it's, it's just, just the expression on her face as well. Not mm. even not even just the blue elements of the photo. So and it's her by herself as well. That, that's the thing about mm. this album which we haven't really touched on that makes it even more brutal and you know in its confessional ideas is that she's alone on it for so much of it she's recording mm-hmm. the guitar she's singing and on the album cover it's just a photo of her by herself with no protection and no no defenses you know so do you know what i think we've done jamie it's it's pouring it down we've told her to come out the queue move to the front we've unclipped the uh the you know, red the red barrier and yeah. we've said go on in go highest level hall of fame there we go we've got our first one that's we amazing have. she's going to be in there alone by herself again that's a She'll- bit sad though She'll, yeah, that's true. I mean, she'll, she'll be joined at some point soon. But, but for me, it's like, you know, when, whenever, when we came up with this idea and this, this category, it was like, all right, we're talking about the kind of Abbey Road, you know, level album covers. This is up there, man. 100% up there. So I'm glad, we, I'm glad we've given it the credit it's due. Right, well, that's it this week for Death of the Record. So Joni Mitchell, Blue, please go out and listen to this album if you haven't already. And as always, follow us on the socials at Death of the Record if you want to hear my impassioned dissection of Hajira all over the Instagram story. The Jamie Instagram story takeovers uh, have been quite a success, although Ollie kind of derailed me by uh, talking about Manchester last week. But anyway, this has been Death for the Record. See you all next week. Will you take me as I am? Will you take me as I am?